One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Lizelle Wellbeing Show, the podcast that brings you weekly wellness wisdom you can trust. And hello to 16LS, who left this review following our very moving recent episode with Ben West. It reads, Thankfully, I have no close personal experience of suicide, but regarding grief, I can really relate as to whether it's, quote, wrong or inappropriate to laugh after loss. And the reviewer goes on to explain, my dad died suddenly in 2005. He was 82 years old, but his passing was very unexpected. And the night before his funeral, I stayed with a close friend who always has me in stitches with her sense of humour. And this night was no different. I remember saying to her that I shouldn't be laughing because my dad's just died, but I couldn't help myself and it lifted me. There were plenty of tears, but humour can also be a normal part of the grieving process. 16LS, thank you for sharing that very personal experience with us. Appreciated. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on social media at Lizelle or you can contact the team at Lizelle Wellbeing. And please do leave us that all important review because it really does help other people to find us. Well, my guest today is the award-winning specialist relationship counsellor, James Earle, who has written and spoken in the past on a wide range of subjects, from understanding anxiety or anger in a relationship, to experiencing a loss of libido, to suffering domestic abuse. He's also written a paper in 2018 called The Romantic Myth of Making Love, in which he argued that sex in a long-term relationship isn't about making love at all. And I'll be asking him a bit more about that. But as well as having a public voice, he's also been a private practitioner for 10 years, helping countless couples with communication issues, loss of desire and intimacy, and surviving affairs amongst so many other problems. A very warm welcome, James, to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a real delight to talk to you because you have written several articles now for my Lizelle Wellbeing magazine. And, you know, I have to be really honest with you. When my editorial team said that they wanted to write about sex and relationships and have an expert, I was a bit nervy about it because we've not gone there before. And I thought it could be, I don't know, a bit voyeuristic, a bit sensational, but you've managed it in such a sensitive way. I love what you write. So first of all, thank you very much for that. Well, thank you. I think um, in couples, talking about sex isn't the easiest thing. And I don't think it's a reflection of the fact that we are prudish or 
repressed. I think it's just a natural human quality. I think we're all a little bit naturally shy. Mm. But I think something else is there as well, which is if I raise sex as an issue in a relationship, quite often it feels like I'm attacking Mm -hmm. because it's obviously an issue between us. If we were talking about a problem that was external to us, there's really no issue there. But if I bring up sex, it's something which is between us and therefore... I think we can get defensive. So I think, you know, it's, it is a, a difficult thing to discuss naturally. That's really interesting, isn't it? I think we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more, particularly the sort of the defensiveness, which I know can be really hard to overcome. I mean, you do cover such a wide range of subjects in a relationship that it's difficult to know really where to start. How did you become a relationship counsellor? Did you have any personal reasons for entering the field? Well, I taught philosophy for many years and I was interested in the idea that um, the natural state of being a human being isn't as an individual at all. It's as a person in relationships. And that idea, I think, comes from the fact that, you know, we all begin life attached to our mothers, inside our mothers. And then for the first years of our lives, the first five years at least, we are completely dependent physically on other people. And I think as we go on into you know, adolescence and adulthood, we mostly form pair bonds. In fact, there's very few societies uh, in the history of uh, humankind where people don't tend to get into couples. And the rules around sex, for example, might be different, but the, the pair bonding idea has been there. So I think the natural state for human beings is not, you know, lots of isolated atom- atomic individuals, but... Uh, couples. So it interests me intellectually. And I suppose the other two things is that as you train as a psychotherapist, you look for a specialism. And it's just one that occurred to me was under-resourced. Besides Relate, the biggest counselling organisation in the country that does work with couples, most individual psychotherapists don't make it a speciality. And so it seemed to me there was a sort of need as well. Mm. I think finally as well, I'm luckily in a happy relationship. And I think that sometimes helps you feel like you should spread the joy. <laughs> yeah, oh, lovely. Love that. We love joy here. It's a very big word for us at Lazar Wellbeing. <laughs> I was reading actually an ONS survey, I think from 2020, to say that most of us in the UK over the age of 16 are living in a relationship Um married, cohabiting, whatever. So, you know, clearly what you say is is borne out by that. Most of us feel the need to have somebody alongside us in our That's in right. our home space. And even as children, isn't it, our feelings of happiness and well being is impacted by the relationships with the adults in our lives. And I I speak as somebody who's sadly been through two divorces with two different sets of children and very much aware of the impact of them, however well you try and do it. And hopefully we managed both ending of our relationships pretty well. But it is of huge significance, isn't it? And, you know, not just for individuals when relationships go wrong, but for the whole family. I think that's right. I mean, the whole welfare of children is tied up with their relationships with the parents. And although I I really don't believe that you should stay together for the children, I think it's always worth bearing in mind what is happening to them and certainly what they might vote for if they had a chance, which, of course, they don't really get to do. And I think, therefore, sometimes it's reasonable to think, you know, can we make it work for them? Not 
you know, can we stay together no matter what? Because at some point, at least, the children will ask you to leave. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's it's really um, quite a balance, this. But yes, I think, you know, we're not just considering our own welfare, we're considering the whole system of the family. Yes. And does that include working with families or do you principally work with couples? Because I know there's this whole area, isn't there, of family therapy? I did actually initially start training at the Institute of Family Therapy um, years and years ago, but I I didn't continue it because I became more interested in couples than in in, uh, families. But family therapy is a fascinating area. And, you know, I, I admire people that can work with such large systems it's very mm. hard work i think yeah a couple work in comparison is is a little bit simpler but um you know still fascinating and complicated but not as complicated as working with you know three or four different people interesting you say you know not necessarily stay together for the sake of the children which is often what i hear and actually in fact i've got several friends right now who are saying that very thing to me sure. i remember being very nervous talking to one of my children um about the possibility of divorce and the first thing that that child said to me was well what took you so long you know, so yeah, you know, they, yeah, you know, they had clearly been processing it and realizing it and seeing and sensing that actually it wasn't the right thing. But having said that, we obviously need to try and make relationships work. And it's really sad, isn't it, that the current divorce rate in the UK is somewhere around the 40% mark? Yes, I mean, it, it is, it is really high. But as you say, that's almost half, are, you know, that's it's almost it's half, a big yeah, fail, exactly. isn't it? It is. And I think it shows that we are a little unrealistic in our expectations of what marriage or long-term relationships can deliver. And so if our expectations are slightly misplaced or slightly too high, I think we can fail uh, more easily. So, you know, one of my missions, I guess, is to get people to think about their relationships more realistically and to be a little bit more tolerant about what they might deliver. In other words, you know, if you believe that your partner can meet all your needs, uh, you're clearly not likely to be that successful. We meet some of each other's needs, and it's incomplete. And I think it's quite often uh, surrounded by a certain degree of myth-making. So, for example, I would say the idea that one person can be your best friend your co-parent, your business partner, if you own property or any other business interests, the centre of your social circle, and also your red-hot love interest or, you know, sex interest. Mm. That's a really tall order. And I think, you know, we never really put it like that, but um, I think it's, uh, it's an incredible demand on somebody else. And, of course, then, you know, reciprocally on ourselves. That's so interesting. So do you see that then as the biggest cause of relationship breakdown or divorce the fact that there are unrealistic expectations that you expect to be able to tick all those boxes i think so yes i mean i i would say if we thought about that a little bit more uh, realistically it wouldn't stop us getting into relationships because as we've both said that's probably the natural state that most people want to be in but i think we might think about you know how we conduct those relationships slightly differently and we might be more realistic about what we expect from the other person so yeah i think sort of trying to bust those myths that one person can meet all our needs is probably healthy 
you know, you want to avoid too much negativity and cynicism. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think, you know, this idea that one person can be everything is probably not a good thought. Uh, You know, the whole idea of soulmates worries me. Really? Um, well, what I mean by <laughs> mm, that is mm. if you have a soulmate, what if you have a row with them? Um, you know, yeah. having a row with a soulmate is an incredibly serious thing, whereas having a row right. with your partner is just normal. I would prefer a, a sort of uh, a thought about the relationship that said, you know, you and I, we get on, we, we rub along, we, we fight sometimes, mm-hmm. we have good mm-hmm. times. You know, that seems to me a more flexible and elastic thought about relationships than saying soulmates. So although, you know, it's a very romantic idea, I'm not sure it's that helpful. That's really interesting. I know an older couple, actually, who do describe themselves as, as soulmates. And they seem very close and very, very connected. But I have never seen or heard them argue. And maybe there is a sense of fear then that you can't, because as you say, if, if somebody's your soulmate, it's going to make it incredibly difficult to disagree with them. Exactly. And and I don't actually think not rowing and not arguing ever is a particularly healthy state of affairs. I mean, I, I know nobody particularly likes conflict, but given that two people in a relationship are different, and yeah. that, you know, we shouldn't sort of have this idea of merging because actually for no other reason, it would just be incredibly boring to be constantly <laughs> looking into a mirror. I mean, uh, yes. I think, uh, you know, what makes a relationship interesting is that the other person is different, has different tastes, different outlooks, different interests, and is just different. And so rowing is perhaps a natural product of that. I'm not talking about constant warfare or, mm. you know, um, horrible degrees of, you know, uh, conflict. I'm just talking about a feeling that you can argue with your partner sometimes and it's not catastrophic. In fact, it's what you might expect. And of course, the making up is always or should be, be a bit of really a high. Good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and actually, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, if you look at it like that, then rows might be a way of distancing two people and also bring them back together. So you could mm. say one way of looking at a row is it's a regulation of intimacy either way. Really interesting. As a therapist, are there one or two sort of persistent problems that you see as the most common when couples are coming to you particularly for help? Yes, there are. and There are two, really, and they're by far the most common problems. The first one is the fallout from affairs. Right. Which are usually very distressing. And then secondly, a loss of desire. And that seems to be the modern problem in relationships that we have an expectation that we're going to be erotically attracted to our partner through the years. And when that proves not to be that easy, we feel a sense of disappointment. Uh, So those Mm. are the two common problems. You've written actually for Lizelle Wellbeing magazine about surviving an affair. And I thought you wrote incredibly well and sensitively and made it really a possibility for a lot of people. Do you get a successful outcome very often that pe- that relationships can survive affairs? And perhaps let's talk about that for anybody in that situation or knowing somebody in that situation that might make, help, help them live, a, you know, have a bit of positivity surrounding this. Well, I really want to avoid a, an obvious cliche here, but nonetheless, you know, maybe cliches are sometimes helpful because they remind us of 
of a, a sort of hidden truth. And the cliche here would be sometimes you can come out from an affair stronger. And I would say that is true often because what happens after an affair is that it requires a degree of honesty and openness, which has perhaps not been either possible or at least it's been missing beforehand. So although nobody would say that's the best route to honesty and openness, sometimes just in a normal way of things, it actually is the outcome. So, yeah, not only can couples recover from affairs, but they can actually go on to be in better relationships. I honestly believe that. And I would say the couples that decide that they don't want to do that or can't do that, usually there are issues there which are not directly to do with the affair. Right. So I think affairs can be recovered from, even though they're they're pretty much like, um, you know, hand grenades under relationships on the whole. Mm. But as you say, could be an underlying symptom of something else that is that's not right. quite as repairable, perhaps. I think that's often the case. And I think when somebody has an affair and it's just a symptom of an underlying difficulty, the couple have got to want to address that. And, you know, sometimes couples don't. I think one of the things that, you know, we're in um, enthralled to here is the idea that the ending of every relationship is a catastrophe and a failure. And I don't personally believe that. I think some relationships may come to natural ends and that you can agree perhaps as a result of an affair that now is the time and that it doesn't really help us at that point to see, oh my God, everything's failed. It may just be that this is the right time to move on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we've grown through the experience and we've understood more and we know more about our needs. Mm. So I'm quite keen that couples can look at the ending of a relationship in the same way that they can look at it continuing. You know, what is best for us both? What's best for everybody else involved, including the kids? And, you know, not make assumptions that it has to be, you know, soldier on at any cost. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that the second most common reason for people, couples coming to see you was loss of desire or that sort of physical side of a relationship diminishing. What is the role, do you think, currently of the over-sexualisation of images on social media, the pressure to look a certain way, the massive rise in pornography, for example? Do you, I guess there's a second question to that, you know, do you see pornography as a friend or a foe? Is it something that can revive a relationship or destroy it? I think like most things, it can be both. My belief as to why pornography is so incredibly popular I read a, uh, an estimate that something like sixty percent of the hits on the internet are for porn, oh, <laughs> which <goodness>. is uh, <laughs> exceptional. If it's true, I don't know wow. if that is true, but wow. uh, but you know, it is definitely very, very popular. I mean, if we put aside all the problems we can anticipate with you know kids looking at porn, and especially I think young men looking at porn, yes. getting the idea of sex being a particular way as represented in porn when it's really not like that. But if we just put it aside and look at why people use it, I don't think the motivation for using porn is directly sexual. I think there is a huge problem in our society of anxiety. And I think what we do when we feel anxiety is we look for ways to soothe ourselves. Now, whether that's by putting our feet up and reading a good book and having a cup of tea, or whether it's by gambling 
or there are many other things you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think actually going into the la-la land of a bit of sexual arousal can work quite well for some people. So I think the ubiquity of porn is partly to do with the fact that so many people are anxious and they can quell that anxiety for a brief period by, you know, using their sort of built-in sexual desire in that way. So, I, you know, I'm not quite sure it's a sexual thing directly. I think it's an anxiety thing. That's so interesting. And of course, talking about anxiety, we can't ignore the impact that the pandemic has had on the state of relationships over the last couple of years. Are we seeing the fallout now of all those months spent locked up together? Well, yes, and it is locked up together, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> literally. Both literally and emotionally. I mean, it, it really isn't, uh, hasn't been good for most couples. I think there was probably a very brief period at the beginning when couples rediscovered, you know, that they could play together and mm. enjoyed chilling out together. So I don't think it was uniformly bad all the way through. But on the whole, when you're kind of on top of each other as a couple, it doesn't help. In fact, I think when most people look at my job, they probably think that what I'm doing is effectively, you know, putting two people back in contact with each other and and sort of reducing the space between them. But actually, I think what I'm doing most of the time is trying to prise them apart (laughs) and uh, allow them to flourish as individuals so so that the relationship can flourish. So lockdown's been awful. It's had a universally bad effect on relationships. Mm -hmm. I think couples that have survived it have probably managed to have distancing techniques in the house which have worked for them or maybe very large gardens very large gardens (laughs) with a shed at the end (laughs) this this shows you how london property prices actually impact on personal relationships they really do there's not enough Mm. space Mm -hmm. literally Mm. you talk then about having individual space do you get individuals coming to see you without their partner can that counseling work in relationship or do you need to have both parties in the same room well, I prefer to have both parties there because I think it's just quicker. But there are many reasons why people come to see me individually, one of which is that they don't want their partner to know. Right. And that might be because they're discussing some crisis they're having or because they are ashamed of feelings they're having or they're contemplating things which may not be, you know, like the possibility of leaving, which they don't want to disclose. But equally, it can be because their partner is not um, willing to attend. Mm. and so in that circumstance it's you know it's good that they can come along by themselves and you know the only rule is that if you see somebody individually that session is entirely confidential so if you were to subsequently meet their partner none of that content leaks into the couple session Mm. Uh, and it always has to be like that in counseling but one is better than none I think so, yes. And I think, you know, you can do a lot of work because a lot of this is really about consciousness raising. It's almost a form of teaching. And so, you know, two people is better than one, but one is better than nothing. Yeah. I've been through various forms of therapy in the last few years uh, to do with relationships, you know, starting off with just basic marriage guidance and counselling and then leading into to other things, which, you know, partly for work, but also for personal experience. And one of the things that I found really interesting was play therapy and having little models and little figures and, and sort of a, a, almost a sandpit that they act out scenarios. And I remember when I first came across it, I thought, this is just ridiculous. You know, this is so childish. This is never going to help either of us. But actually, it was amazingly powerful in 
transferring feelings and thoughts and emotions and what you think about yourself uh, and the other person into these little figures that you sort of almost play with remotely. It's a lovely technique. And it's amazing. You can, you can do it with little dolls or you mm. can do it even with just normal everyday objects. Some therapists use a, a basket of stones or pebbles and then you can arrange those in terms of you know, either the feelings you're having or representing people. So the actual objects are, are obviously just symbolic, but it can be a very effective way of representing things non-verbally. And sometimes non-verbally is the only way we can really yeah. get to the truth. So, yeah, I think these are all good techniques. Fascinating. Well, after the break, I'd like to ask you in a bit more detail about some of your theories. But before we go, I know that you've won awards for some animations that you've made. I guess that, you know, leads neatly on from what we were talking about, using things non-verbally. And the animations help to explain some of the common feelings and the mental health issues that we might experience, like you talked about anger, anxiety. How did these come about and, and why did you turn to animation as a tool here? Well, I have a, a psychotherapist colleague, a guy called Quint Boer, who also happens to own a, a film company uh, that specialises in animation. And as a result of the pandemic, we both noticed the huge rise in mental health problems. And we felt that we might be able to intervene and offer people some clarity with some, you know, free resources so we produced a set of animations. They're all only two minutes long mm -hmm. on anger, on trauma, on depression, on anxiety and alcohol, among other things. And um, we've just given them for you know people to, to look at as and when. But the, the point about using animation is it keys into a very early part of us. We are charmed by animation. We all probably remember seeing you know, cartoons when we were a kid and we sort of get lulled by it. So it's yes. a very good way of teaching. Yeah. But the other thing, of course, is it's an amazing way of being able to, as you were describing with the dolls, do things that you can't really do in everyday life. So just one example, I say in one of the uh, animations about trauma, you can't get your head around trauma. Now, as I say that, the animation shows somebody's head going round a sort of a symbolic trauma. Right. And you, yes. couldn't, you couldn't do that in real no. life, but you can do it in an animation. Uh, so it's a great teaching tool. So I, I think it's both charming and educative. Um, so it's a great medium. Fantastic. Where can we see these? Are they available to view? So if you just go to my website, they're all available there. They're also available on YouTube. My website's uh, jamesearl.com. Uh, and you are Earl, Earl without any, unlike me. Yes, we're, 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 we're not we're related. Name. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, just before we finish, I made a discovery, talk about childhood memories and having nice messaging. I've recently discovered that the Clangers are on Instagram. Oh. And oh, wow. I grew up with the Clangers, obviously, and they put little snippets on their Instagram. And I hadn't realised, actually, as a child, the amazingly good beneficial messaging that comes through the clangers because it's all about caring for each other, caring for their planet, being looked oh, after yeah. by the soup dragon and all of that. I mean, they are really charming things <laughs> to watch. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and we learn so much uh, using that medium. So I think animation is the way forward. I really do. Oh, lovely. Well, we're going to pause for a quick ad break here. When we come back, we'll be asking James about some of his theories about relationships, including why he thinks we often fail to keep sex alive in the longer term. Thank you. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, welcome back. And as I said just before the break, we're going to be talking about sex and having a deep dive into keeping intimacy alive in the long term. Because James, I read a, a dreadful study, I think it was a relate study with Mumsnet saying that a very large proportion of people describe their relationships as being completely sexless, which sounds really sad. I think it is. I mean, it's one of the natural pleasures of life. And although you can live without it, I think the analogy is living without music. You could do it, but why would you want to? Right. <laughs> so I think, you know, the point is, it's one of the things that makes life worth living. It's not essential to couples, because I think if couples agree that they want to live in a um, a platonic way and that they're happy like that, then mm -hmm. I really have no comment about that other than, you know, good luck, it sounds like that's, uh, that's their choice. But I think most of us would choose to probably have sex, not just in their lives, but in their relationships. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think that's a slightly depressing figure. Yeah. Well, it was a 2018 study, actually, with Mumsnet and Grandnet, and it found that around 30% of their users described themselves as being in a sexist relationship, which was described as or defined as having had sex fewer than 10 times or not at all in the past year. So clearly there's not no sex, but, you know, that's quite a high bar potentially for a lot of people. That's almost like kind of once a month. I don't know. But to me, as an older person, you know, having had difficult relationships, you know, that sounds quite a lot. Is there a sort of a um, a happy average that we should be aiming for? Do you say to your couples, this is your no, scorecard, you need to tick this no, off the, you know, a number of times? 
there genuinely isn't. I mean, some couples like to have sex several times a week. In fact, even possibly uh, several times a day. And in other couples... I'm trying not to look be. amazed by that, but well, okay. <laughs> I know, but I, I think that's the case. But I think also there are, you know, there's the other extreme, which is, um, you know, once a month, once every six months, once a year on birthdays and anniversaries or not at all. And I don't think there's any normal in that. I think mm-hmm. it, it's really about, you know, what it is you would like and what sex means to you. Because sex is not very much about physical things we do in a bedroom. It's much more to do with what it means and what it achieves for us. So it's that which I'm interested in, really. I mean, what people do is, um, you know, <laughs> there's a limited sort of range of um, things there. It's not, it, it, these yeah. problems don't arise because of techniques. Right. They arise because we don't really know how to think about sex and being clear about what we can achieve with it. Or we don't want to be that connected with somebody. I mean, you know, well, you, you, right, you can't course. have sex without being connected, you know, physically and, you know, potentially emotionally and, and as well. That That's exactly the right word because I think... If you say sex is predicated on love, it can end up going down all sorts of dead ends. But if you don't have sex when, you know, if, if, you, if you try and have sex when you're not connected, mm. that's very different. It's almost impossible. I mean, physically, you can have sex if you're not connected, but it feels odd. And in fact, you've got to be connected outside of sex. You've got to be in a sort of playful, energized connection with somebody and this is why we can actually connect with somebody that we've recently met in Mm -hmm. that way because it's quite an intimate thing obviously but you can still do it if you've got that sense of connection and that's the problem in a long-term relationship quite often it's the sense of connection that goes right and then of course sex will take a hit yeah so if sex is non-existent perhaps, or isn't being enjoyed by more than one or both parties. What's the best thing that a couple can do? I mean, maybe is there a disparity there if one one person wants it more than the other? How do you go about approaching it? And obviously, I realise it can be a very difficult thing for couples to talk about. It is. And I think quite often what precipitates the eventual conversation, which is what's necessary to talk about it, there's usually some kind of crisis. So, for example, with a couple perhaps not had sex for 10 years and that's not that uncommon how do you get back from there i mean that's really hard you can can you you? can and in fact yeah i mean i've had a couple of couples recently who've had that kind of period of not having had sex and have come back from it and actually have resumed a really enjoyable physical relationship so you know i think we have to be optimistic that even Mm -hmm. though that sounds like it's quite serious you can change it and as i said it's not about techniques it's not about you know swinging from ever higher chandeliers (laughs) it's much more about you know what is this meant to be achieving for us what's the meaning of it for each of us and it's not necessarily assuming that it's a it's the same thing for both of you so Mm -hmm. for example one of you may see it as a way of being close to somebody whereas the other person may see it as a way of being um, having fun and and being in that sort of erotic space. And those are sort of slightly different, mm-hmm. if you like, vibes around it. And so getting hold of those sort of meanings to people is really the essential thing to just get it back on track. And, and therefore, it requires more than anything else talking. And it doesn't matter if it means different things to different people. Well, no, it's actually really good because <laughs> actually it makes it more interesting. If you right. have a mirror image, I think it's probably a, a bit boring. I mean, and if, uh. you, if you compare sex to almost anything else, 
So let's compare it to our taste in food or our taste in music. Right. Not only would you not expect it to be the same, you know, if my partner's into folk music and I'm into classical, uh, that doesn't pose a problem. That's actually interesting and it makes, you know, Mm. uh, our, our listening to music enjoyable. But it also means that we are expressing our individuality. And if, you know, somebody was to say, me and my partner have our taste in music, you'd look at them and think that was slightly creepy and a bit odd. <laughs> you know. But yes. in terms of sex, uh, we don't think like that because we're so used to the idea that mm. it's a co-created experience based in love. So we don't like to admit the individual nature of it, like our taste in food. Mm. And of course, when you first meet somebody you don't really notice that because, you know, if I'm dating somebody and this is the early few weeks and my partner's, no, my new partner says, uh, shall we put on some music? I say, yeah, sure. And they say, shall we put on some Norwegian free jazz? And I go, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yes. I'd love that. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'd love that. But a little later on down the line, mm. we get to realise that you like classical, I like folk music. And, mm. and it's that that difference which allows us to feel that the relationship is developing. But we don't do that with sex because with sex, we want to believe that it's it's circumscribed by love. And in fact, it's an expression of love. And in fact, I think the biggest problem of all it's one that really sort of stares us in the face because I think everybody knows this. They just don't like talking about it. When we are dating somebody or when we're single, indeed, we talk about having sex and, you know, that's an enjoyable aspect of our lives. But then we say when we get with somebody and we're, we're properly in a relationship with them or living with them, we don't have sex anymore. Now we do something much more profound and serious and interesting, which is that we make love. So we give up the terminology of having sex and we're now making love. And making love is a thousand times better than having sex. But the problem with that myth is that most people don't feel like that. Most people would say that the sex they had at the beginning of the relationship was exciting and interesting. And as they go on in the relationship, it gets a little bit more problematic, perhaps even a little more prosaic. Mm. And so, you know, I, I think we're... We're almost like prisoners of our own myths here. I think it would be better to say this idea of basing it in love isn't that helpful to us. So is Um, is that the paper that you wrote? Because I know you wrote a paper called The Romantic Myth of Making Love. It's really just trying to challenge that idea that... um, you know, making love is a a good model. Now, you know, I'm not saying for one moment that, you know, having sex with a stranger is better than having sex with somebody that you love. In fact, quite the reverse. And the analogy there would be if you drop me into a new city and, you know, I will, as is my want, almost certainly head for the art gallery. <laughs> and uh, if I go to that art gallery, I would rather be with my partner than with a stranger I picked up off the street because it's just going to be a more interesting conversation. So having a sexual relationship with a long-term partner is probably the best situation you can be in, but not if you think that it's going to be based in this expression of of lovingness. In other words, because you love them, it's a good person to have sex with, but it's not for the purposes of love making. It's for the purposes of sex, <laughs> which is a slightly different way of thinking about it. And I think that's where I think we can often go wrong. 
That is so interesting. Is there then a, a, a gender divide on how we view sex? Do, do women tend to stereotypically think more about making love or being made love to, for example, whereas for guys, it's more about let's have sex? Do you know what? I think it's almost the reverse. Really? And uh, the reason I think that is I think men often want sex. I mean, you know, I know men have got the reputation for wanting sex with anything that's got a pulse. Uh, (laughs) But but actually, I think most guys are intimacy deprived. Mm. And the research seems to show that they get picked up, kissed and cuddled as kids. Yeah. Something like half the, uh, the amount that girl children do, even with parents that really? to be treating them the same. Yes, exactly. It was a Scandinavian study a few years ago. And then they go on in their life to lack intimacy because they have fewer friends than most women. They touch their friends far less often. Yes. I mean, women casually touch their friends a lot and men don't. I mean, men, I think, enjoy contact sports quite often because it allows them a degree of touch. Mm. Um, they don't have deep and meaningful conversations with their friends, certainly not in the way that most women do. You know, you can't imagine two guys in a pub saying, oh, yeah, I've had a really kind of down week this week. It's been really difficult. I'm really not sure which direction I'm heading in. You know, that's not the sort of thing that guys do. No, it's do not common. Mm. And they don't also have that sort of very easy intimacy where they can just chat about everything and nothing with somebody that they half know, which gives you a kind of connection with people at the school gate, for example, that, you know, you don't particularly know, but you can be intimate with because you can chat. And guys will often see that as a sort of a small talk and as something that is demeaning. And it deprives them of intimacy. So if you put all that together, how do we get intimacy? Well, the birthright that boys have is the right to have sex. So we get our intimacy through sex. And because girls don't need to have intimacy only through sex, I think they can be more playful with um, the idea of sex. So I think actually, if I had to say, you know, where the gender difference is, it's that boys seek intimacy through sex and women may... I'm using boys and girls here just because I think this does begin with the way in which we're brought up. Mm. But I think women don't necessarily need to use sex for intimacy they can use it for just for fun that's so interesting and and very liberating actually for women because that's historically not what's been perceived well it's against all the stereotypes and (laughs) it's also um if you think like that you might sort of say well you know that could be quite shaming in some way but Mm. you know that that shaming thing's still around it's been around for thousands of years it's still there yeah but actually i think it's a kind of inversion of the truth You talk about shame, and that brings me on to thinking maybe about trauma. How common is it to see the trauma perhaps of a past relationship having an impact on a current relationship? Well, one of the biggest traumas in a relationship, um, besides really awful things like domestic violence, Mm. domestic abuse, but I mean, if, if we look at, say, the trauma of an affair, one of the things that happens is that in a long-term relationship we have essentially two relationships in one one is the play relationship but the other is where we're looking out for each other which you might describe as the parent-child relationship and in an affair it's the parent-child relationship that gets messed up your credentials as my surrogate parent looking out for me are injured if you don't bear me in mind and go off and have sex with somebody else And I think that trauma of feeling that your parent isn't there anymore can carry from one relationship into the next. 
with a degree of suspicion and a degree of uncertainty and, you know, lack of trust. So, yeah, I think there is a sort of, you know, that things carry on from one relationship to the next. And you talk there about parents. I've also heard it mentioned that how you are brought up by your parents influences who you choose as a partner and potentially then impacting on on your sex life as a result of that. That's absolutely true, I think. I mean, there are several layers to this. There's, you know, the here and now level at which you meet somebody and you you fancy them, you admire them, you like them or whatever. But there's also what your mum and dad would want for you, Mm. which you might want to try and fulfil for them, or you might be deliberately trying to go against. You know, there's that sort of um, possibility there. But at a much deeper level, there's the unconscious attempt to try and meet somebody that represents the problematic parent. So let me give you an example. If you had an angry father where you could never quite know, you know, um, when to ask for a hug, um, when to step back, you know, it was full of uncertainty and inconsistency and there was a degree of fearfulness around it, you might well seek out a partner where you can replay that same drama to try and master it. And I Extraordinary. Don't think I don't think that's uncommon mm. at all. Mm. It, it it also explains why, you know, if you've had a, say, a rather unresponsive parent, you might look for a rather unresponsive partner because you're trying to get control over this thing that's been historically so difficult. You know, if, if finally I can win your love and melt you, uh, you know, uh, enough to love me, then I, I, I will feel really fulfilled. And, you know, I think that's usually unconscious, but of course, in therapy, you can bring it into consciousness. Yeah. And it, it's by no means always there, but I think it's quite often part of the complex ways in which we form our partnerships. Um, sex in particular is a, an interesting area because I think quite often we use our preferences and our fantasies to deal with our past um, pain, emotional pain, in our family's origin. Now, that sounds like a, a very odd claim, and it maybe even sounds a bit pompous, because we may say, well, fantasies are just, you know, the candy floss, the mental candy floss that goes with sex. But on this reading, they're not really. They are actually treatment plans for past pain. And so uh, Dr. Michael Bader, who I would recommend to everybody to read his book, Arousal, talks about a movement from tragedy to triumph. That's his phrase, where the, the things that turn us on, the sort of thoughts and feelings that turn us on, are a way of dealing with things that have happened to us in the past. Not usually abuse or trauma, just normal family dynamics. That's probably too uh, deep to go into now, but it's an interesting idea because it says that fantasies and preferences are significant. So arousal, tragedy to triumph. What was the name of the author again? His name's Dr. Michael Bader, B-A-D-E-R. And that also might explain why, if you are somebody who was unfortunate enough to be bullied perhaps by a parent, domineering parent, you might then subconsciously seek out to marry or, or, or cohabit with somebody who is bullying because you're, are you subconsciously trying to mend that behaviour then? Or are you just sort of drawn to that because that's your default position? I don't think it's, uh, you can assume it's always the case, but I think it is sometimes the case. And it's usually not something that people are aware of, no. but I think it's a really important 
thing to bear in mind as a therapist that may be part of the story mm. and i think you know equally in in terms of our sexual preferences sometimes they take us in a direction that you might find surprising but actually if you look at the the fantasy it's sometimes connected with the same kind of idea you know will i can reclaim something that was unpleasant and make it now pleasurable you know it's a uh, it, it, I think these unconscious motivations are very often there. That's what makes psychotherapy an interesting way of approaching these these ideas. Oh, absolutely. And there are just so many external pressures now, aren't there, on relationships, whether we're talking oh, about absolutely. conversations about money or work or family. And, and now, of course, we've got social media. And, you know, as the mother of children of varying ages, I can see the impact, you know, the, the difference, for example, on my 30-year-old compared to my 20-year-old compared to my 12-year-old. You know, these are yeah. these pressures are huge and they seem to be getting worse and more intense. Is that making it harder for couples? couples to stay together, do you think? I mean, for example, you only have to swipe on your phone and you can find a new partner within five minutes, can't you? Yes. I mean, I think if you're happy in your relationship, it's less likely to happen. I don't think the fact that there's so much uh, possibility out there necessarily means it's going to happen. Um, but on the other hand, you know, maybe what the possibility represents is to a large extent unmet needs you know i wonder whether or not in previous generations people would have been behaving the way they do now more often had they had the means yeah you know for example during lockdown i've had lots of clients tell me that um, they've discovered the joys of sexting because they can't actually be physically close to their um their other half or indeed mm. just other other friends. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, sexting hasn't been available as a possibility yeah, no. until relatively recently. <laughs> but, you know, what, what, yeah. what it actually shows you yeah. is that people enjoy not just the physicality of sex, but the talking about it and the, yeah, the, the engagement with ideas. Yeah. yeah. How so, interesting. Yeah, I, it's it's, it's mm. good and bad, isn't it, like most things? <laughs> yes, these things are tools, aren't they? We have to remember That's that right. and it depends how we use them and in what hands. Finally, do you ever say to couples, do you know what? I've listened to everything you have to say and I've been counselling you for so long now. I think you'd actually be better off going your separate ways. What do they call it? Conscious uncoupling. Yes, I mean, I, I don't necessarily put it as bleakly as that, <laughs> right. but I will I will talk to them about, uh, you know, the fact that their relationship may not have a sort of binary choice. Because if you've got children, for example, it's very tempting to think you can just leave. But of course, you can't just leave. The relationship sure. will endure. Yeah. Uh, it'll just endure in different forms. So what yeah. we're really talking about is changing the type of relationship you're in. Mm -hmm. And there's a new form of relationship, which I find very interesting, called co-nesting. Co-nesting. Oh, that's interesting. That means Make a note of that a couple, one. they're not together as a couple, but they are living in the same house. And, oh, right. Or the same place. Yeah. And there's, they're co-nesting because it's cheaper. Yes. And it's better for the kids. Mm. And because any other people involved in their lives don't need to be brought back to the nest. And so it's a way of ending a relationship without necessarily, you know, visibly ending it. Because actually a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know that's what you're doing. How very, very interesting. James, it's fascinating to talk to you. Thank you. I would love to have you back as another guest. And thank you for being a contributor to the magazine. Your work is just brilliant. Remind us where we can connect with you. Oh, uh, just at jameserl.com. 
jamesaldock.com. Jamesaldock.com. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and I'd love to come back. Thank you so much. Well, what a brilliant conversation. Lots to go away and think about. And I will make sure that we pop all the resources and links that James kindly mentioned on our podcast notes, or you will find them, of course, on the website, lizardwellbeing.com. And there you can sign up for the free weekly newsletter filled with plenty of tips for living well, including advice and ideas on relationships and mental health. And of course, don't forget that there is our bi-monthly magazine, Lizard Wellbeing magazine, and James, I'm delighted to say, is a regular contributor and his articles are absolutely not to be missed. Well, if you'd like to get in touch, as I said at the beginning of the episode, you can find me across most social media. I'm at Lizelle Me or the team at Lizelle Wellbeing. And do please leave us a review and a little five star rating if you fancy it on whichever podcast platform you listen to me on. Until the next time we chat, go well. Bye bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is a fresh air production with grateful thanks to my producers, Ellie Smith, Chesie Bent and Sarah Moore. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.